0: Before this episode of the final word podcast, a quick thank you to the final word sponsor, brick lane brewing this week. It's all about the lager. Brick lane lager is a true premium lager featuring a unique cross flow filtration that allows the quality ingredients to express themselves fully. Can you see where I'm going with this? It's just like the final word quality hosts, Adam Collins and Jeff lemon with their unique flow that allows them to fully express themselves twice a week. Anyway. Make sure you join Adam and Jeff on the Final Word Patreon page. If you support the show, you could win a slab of Brick Lane goodness. Adam and Jeff will tell you more about it in the show. Head to Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Tell them the Final Word sent you. And remember, you can find everything Final Word related at FinalWordCricket.com. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the Final Word, and thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the Final Word.
2: I had to go
0: about it, write it out and find it myself And there's
1: some stories I can tell you It is the Final word Cricket Podcast with me, Adam Collins and the guy that's down the Zoom screen with me in a flash pair of new glasses Hello Jeff Lemon, well, what's going on here? Before we go anywhere to do with the game and our show ahead I've got to ask you about the frames you've got, they're new to me just sliding them up my nose like a sexy librarian
3: after looking at you over the top. Yeah, so, so my friend Sweeney is an optometrist and at one point, probably a couple of years ago in a pub, he, he drunkenly started poking me in the chest with his finger and saying, I saw you on the television and if you're going to be on there, you need to have better glasses. Come and see me. <laughs> And so eventually, (laughs) given that I was in in Melbourne and uh, not allowed to leave, I did just that. So he's hooked me up with some new frames.
1: I remember in my politics days, we did a similar thing with my boss uh, then, Wayne Swan, who had similar glasses to you had before. So the ones that didn't stand out, the rimless, striking. Rimless, that's right. And then he went to the more distinctive black frames that you've got now, and it was quite the talking point around Canberra, mm-hmm. which says a little bit about the fishbowl that is um, Parliament yeah. House, but still. So you've made that transition. You'll look a lot better on television. Put it this way. They stood out to me. For, for a moment there, I'm like, hang on, does Jeff have glasses at all? I mean, I've known you for many, many years, but it stands out now. I
3: have them in the cartoon of us that promotes this show. I'm wearing glasses. <laughs> like, I definitely have glasses.
1: And moreover, I've, I've seen what you're like when you don't have them on. You can't see more than a foot in front of you.
3: No absolutely can't see a thing so um, very necessary uh, there's there's the the old Groucho Marx line of uh, what was it my my father my father was an optometrist uh, he
1: fell into his lens grinder and made a spectacle of himself. <laughs> uh, Jeff we have a big interview coming up today we, we had a couple of notes in the patron inbox saying oh, we like those long interviews you do when when I'm mm-hmm. coming and I, and I was sort of um, I was trying to keep bat and pad close together, not revealing until now that we have a long chat this afternoon coming up with Claire Connor, who's the boss of women's cricket at the ECB, a role she's held for a long period of time, former England captain. She's about to become the first president of the MCC, who's a woman, 234 years or whatever it is since they started the club. Uh, she'll be the first woman to be chairing the meetings, so which, which is very exciting. Mm. So, And Claire's been you know, a great supporter of the work we've done on the podcast and with our journalism over many years. So it's going to be great to have her with us to talk about her life and times in the game. Jeff, we have some breaking news, really. I mean, not to, not to say that we'll be breaking the news, but <laughs> since, since we've just hit the recorder within 20 yeah. minutes of Brisbane being announced as the Olympic City for 2032.
3: And, and given this podcast will go out 24 hours after the time of recording, it, by which it, time that, that's the it. news if will be lucky. even less breaking.
1: But I suppose that there is, that there is a cricket angle, isn't there? Um, mm-hmm. The Gabba will be a, a big part of this showpiece event 11 years from now. Mm-hmm. I must admit my first thoughts were, I was a bit bruised that Melbourne never had a pop for 2028 or, or 2032 and and how easy it's been for Brisbane to get it. Effectively without contest They were the only real bid uh, That that got to the final stage Whereas you go back to 1996 Mm. Or 1990 Ahead of the 96 games And Melbourne had to duke it out With Athens And then how how difficult it was For Sydney to win uh, The 2000 games And and other cities That have missed out Along the way altogether And there it will be In 2032 In Brisbane A city I've spent Loads of time in you Uh as well And congratulations to them And and the Gabba will Presumably get a massive facelift Because of it And it might even end up Being the stadium
3: They were uh, Brisbane in the parlance, in the Gary parlance. uh, They were all alone in the goal square. Just had to (laughs) catch it and pop it through. But... Maybe that's because all of the other cities have realised that uh, hosting the Olympics uh, sucks because if you're like Tokyo, it's like, oh, we're going to get sued by the IOC, We're going to lose billions of dollars. <laughs> Nobody's allowed to go. We'll potentially have a, a massive pandemic outbreak um, of even worse proportions. Half of the athletes will be knocked out of their sports by quarantining arrangements or by getting on the bags apparently which has been
1: yeah a factor who in, the, knew? in in the who, Australia. Who knew show who jumpers would have thought? love to show jumpers love to party party I, I never saw that coming who
3: would have thought that the people who can afford to ride horses for a sport would also uh, be able to afford 400 bucks a pop um, on a night out in Sydney well who would who would have thought <laughs> so Look, there's all of that. I think that maybe maybe some cities have worked out that when the IOC refers to a host city, it does tell you that the IOC itself is a parasite. And, and Brisbane maybe haven't quite worked that out. So they're, they're, um, yeah, they were unattended in competition for the 2032 spot.
1: For all of that, for all of your cynicism, and I'm not saying it's unfounded, there, there is a magic about being an Olympic city, and Brisbane will, will get to enjoy that and luxuriate in that for mm-hmm. the next 11 years until they host the Games. And they'll forever be known as, as yeah. Brisbane 2032 in the same way that we speak of Seoul or Barcelona. Uh-huh. Cities that aren't huge necessarily, I suppose, when you think of where they, they sit in in the global pecking order, Brisbane will be, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's what, Australia's third biggest city. I suppose mm-hmm. if you include the Gold Coast, and I would imagine that the Gold Coast will do a fair bit of the heavy lifting with hosting events, it becomes a, a massive Metropolis, but mm-hmm. yeah- traditionally the third biggest city in Australia, getting to, to join Sydney from 2000 and Melbourne from 1956. And yeah, the Gabba, which has been comfortably the worst test venue from a stadium perspective Ambience. in recent years. Yeah, uh, now they'll get a chance to reimagine it mm. and, uh, and presumably knock it down and, and start again and, and turn what used to be a great iconic venue into one again, which is exciting for, for the sport that we follow because once the Olympics have come and gone, it'll, it'll go back to being a cricket ground again.
3: Well, they might have cricket at the Olympics by 2032, and they might be able to play Mm. cricket at the Gabba or at Allen Border Field. And we can realise our dream of getting Tim Payne on board as the ambassador for 2032. Can't wait to get you (laughs) to the Gabba, um, which can be on the ads that get beamed around the world. I'm sure he'll be up for that with the the paycheck in tow. The Gold Coast, as you say, doing some heavy lifting. They've been doing their reps already with the Commonwealth Games that they hosted and, uh, you know, being the host city for the Gold Coast Suns, nothing prepares you for a major sporting event like that, turning out the, the big crowds that that rock up to see the red and gold go around uh, every other week and all of the other games that they have to host when there are pandemic restrictions in
1: all of the other states. So plenty of exciting things. We will uh, now move, before we go to our feature interview, just a a little spot, just a little diversion uh, to a game we like to call No. Nerd Pledge.
3: Nerd Pledge. Uh, that's the late night soft voice version. Nerd Pledge <laughs> is a game. It's a game that we play with people on the Patreon page. It's a reverse quiz. They quiz us. Uh, you can quiz us too if you want to play Nerd Pledge. It goes like this uh, to help us make the show so we can do these episodes a couple of times a week. They send us contributions, but the contributions are not normal round numbers of whatever currency they choose. They're specific numbers. For instance, The number this week is $3.28. It's from Lara Killick, a former correspondent, previous correspondent as well. So 328, it could be 32.8, could be 3.28, whatever it's going to be. 328 in some way relates to cricket. Lara sent a clue. You don't have to send a clue, but Lara did, saying, Here is the first of my many nerd pledges. Good to know. You can change your number and keep it going around. In this unique FIFA, says Lara. He tops the leaderboard. So Adam and I had a little conversation about this. We were like looking at, all right, what what can this mean? Three... Two eight, and we were trying to figure out if you multiply that by something, does it take many times before it becomes a round number? Like what round number is divisible by a, a, a small number of numbers that would equal 3.28? I'm sure there are mathematical terms for these things, but we don't know them. We've said previously we're not good at maths. While we were trying to figure this out, I re-watched Good Will Hunting recently, Adam, that scene where he's doing the, <laughs> the formula on the whiteboard. I felt like Goodwill Hunting when we were trying to figure this out. But we worked out that if you multiply three point two by seven it almost gets you to a round number which is 23 so if you divided 23 by seven it would be 3.28 which means if someone took seven for 23 it would be at 3.28 runs a piece that's where we started and then I let you go with it from there.
1: Yeah, Jeff, and this uh, falls into the category of an answer where if we're not right, you might have to lie to us, Lara, because I'm, I'm very happy with where we landed on 7 for 23s. Okay, so it's happened four times in Test cricket. Which is a lot. Like, just out yeah. the gate, 7 for 23, that's a pretty fucking crazy analysis. How's it happened four times? Especially when we, we talked about one of them, like, a month ago, Shane Warne, 7 for 23. Oh, yeah. Gabber against uh, Pakistan back in 95. Well, if you go back to 1931, there's the first of those instances, and it was Bert Munger. We've talked about Dainty, as he was known before, because, well, because he's very old and a spinner, and thus he's been a, a topic of interest mm-hmm. to us. Well, I mean, he was very old when he made his test tabo yep. at age 45. He's older now. In 1929, or 1928, sorry, in the uh, series where England bossed Australia and, and won 4-1. Anyway, so... Ironmonger, yeah, makes his debut in 28-29, two tests and out. And yeah, surely at age 45, you're kind of like, okay, I'm done, right? Like had I've made go. it. Mm-hmm. I've had my go. I've done. But no, no, no. He went down and banged the door down. The next season, he took 38 wickets at 20. So at the start of 1931 <laughs> or in the summer of 30-31, he's back. For the Brisbane Test Match At Brisbane, by the way Where he made his first class debut In 1909 Before the First World War But now in 1931 He's playing Test Cricket again Now, this Test Match in question The one after that Is at the Melbourne Cricket Ground And the West Indies uh, win the toss And are going okay At 51 for 1 and then Ironmonger intervenes. He gets Headley out for 33 and then the wheels completely fall off. They lose nine for 48. They're all out for 99, the visiting West Indies. Ironmonger, 20 unchanged overs and takes his seven for 23. By stumps that night, Australia are already flaying uh, the visitors. They're 197 for one. Bradman's on, 92 not out. He goes on to make a century the next day, uh, which is when the West Indies bat for a second time and they're all out for 109. I Munger takes four more wickets and it's all over in, in two days. There wouldn't be another two-day test match, including the West Indies, by the way, uh, until 2000 at Leeds when Andy Caddick and co. Uh, rolled them over at Leeds in that day when there was like 22 wickets or something like that. Anyway... So the clue here from Lara says it was a unique fifer where the leaderboard is topped. Well, how's this? Ironmonger was 48 years and 312 days when he took his seven for 23. And it was his first five-wicket haul, which means he was and remains the oldest player to take his first fifer in Test cricket. And I think almost better still. So he's still there, of course, because no one's done it since. But better still. The man who who tops that chart before him was Don Blackie, our other favourite old spinner on the final Uh word, who was 46 years and 268 days when in that series of 28-29 when Blackie and Iron were playing Mm. side-by-side, he took his first five wicket bags. Yep. But but earlier in the series was it earlier in the series? That's mm. right. So in the case of um, Iron Munga, he is the well he, he he remains the second oldest Test player ever. He was still going around when he was fifty and three hundred and twenty-seven days. Second only, of course, to our man Wilfred Rhodes. Uh, and he has the fifth best economy rate of all time at one point six nine runs per over, which I thought was a, a neat place to leave it. So he was economical and effective with his seven for twenty-three. The oldest cricketer to take his first five wicket bag how's that
3: I love it, economical and old, um, everything everything coming together. And and if you're Don Blackie, like in normal circumstances, if you took your first five for it at 46, you'd think I'm a pretty good chance to hang on to this record forever. But if you're playing in the same series as a guy who's 48 <laughs> and hasn't got one yet, you'd be thinking, ooh, <laughs> this may be a close run thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I, a record he held for three years after doing mm. it at 46. I mean, he's stiff. He's still second on the chart, by the way. It's I, manga Blackie, one and two. Mm. I reckon, Jeff, for that, Lara is our Brick Lane Brewing Community Slab of the Week, which we said we weren't going to call them that, but um, I think I've um, stumbled upon something we're going to keep saying. You you do keep saying that. Um, So, Lara, you get to send
3: someone a case of Brick Lane's finest brews. Uh, I think Lara lives in the USA from memory, from previous correspondence. So, the person needs to be in Australia to get this beer. That's the catch. So, if you live in Australia, you can send it to yourself, but if you don't, You can't send it to yourself. You're going to have to send it to someone else. If you don't know anyone in Australia, you can send it to us if you want. That's fine. Uh, This week, it's uh, the One Love Pale Ale. That's what's going out. Let me tell you about it, Adam. I know you want to know. It's a (laughs) soft-bodied pale ale. ooh, Bursting with bright hop aromas and stone fruit and citrus flavours. Golden straw in colour with a soft, delicate haze from malted and flaked wheat in the brew. I've sampled a few of these pale ales and they are pretty good. So that's a, you know, it's a sort of session beer. It's a 4.4%, so it's not too strong. And Lara, you will be sent the means to forward that on to whoever you want in Australia and they can go and collect 24 shells of the finest.
1: Yeah, that's right. So we will simply send that uh, voucher out to you. And we mentioned on on Storytime uh, last weekend that if you're part of our waiting list on on Patreon at the moment, that means you're within a, you've got a pretty good chance of Mm -hmm. ending up with this voucher in your hand because we're going to give out two per week, one on the weekly show, uh, one on Storytime. So if you're already in the queue, we might pull your name out of the hat. And if you're not, if you're already a patron and want to resubmit, you'll be back in there again with a chance of winning some of the good stuff from the Brick Lane Brewing community, which we're proud to be part of here on the final word to learn more about them follow them on their social media channels we've had uh, a number of people get in touch saying that they've bought uh, brick lane beer in the last couple of weeks and uh, have been posting photos on social media which is just delightful so thank you for supporting them as they have been supporting us
3: well i had a letter in from mark bagworth who i wonder if he knows any equestrian writers mark bagworth, <laughs> um, <laughs> who, who has sent through about 400 bucks i think if you're wondering uh, he's he sent through a, a note to say, um, you know, I enjoy listening to the podcast as I'm driving to and from work. You had just started talking about Brick Lane as I turned on to the Frankston-Dandenong Road in beautiful Dandenong South. I drive past there twice a week. Uh, twice a week? Twice a day. Five days a week. Uh, great beers. their pale ales. A gorgeous drop. So this is all unsolicited. This just happened. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, and if you ever get down to Dandy South, I'll shout you a pale ale or two. We will take you oh. up on that mark over the summer.
1: Absolutely. I spent loads of time in Dandenong South during the 2004 election campaign. We thought we were in strife, by we I mean the Labor Party, in the seat of Isaacs. And we were right, we were in strife. We just held on by the skin of our teeth. But we spent like six weeks pounding the pavement around Dandenong South and um, trying to maximise our vote in that part of the electorate. So I would love to return to Dandenong South and I would love to have a beer with Mark Bagworth, at the, uh, at the factory there uh, so you can buy the draft stuff in Dandy South, as you can at the Queen Victoria Market, which is in the, the middle of Melbourne or just in the in the western corner of the CBD. Uh, I think they're there four days a week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or is it Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Whatever it is, you can get down there and, and try some of the good stuff yourself.
3: All right. If you want to play Nerd Pledge and also uh, get the chance to send someone a case, you can go to patreon.com slash the final word. Uh, you can help us keep the show going and uh, put yourself in the running. Let's take the mid-show breather and then we'll get into Claire Connor.
2: Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin.
3: It's that magic time that comes around once a month. That's when monthly cricket magazines come out, particularly the one that's called Wisden Cricket Monthly. It may be the only monthly cricket magazine. It's the only one that I care to know about because it's the best in the world. Uh, There's a lot going on in WCM this month Uh, firstly a question that I think may be of interest to listeners in England and in Australia which is why are batters in English cricket so shit (laughs) they're like (laughs) batters in English cricket are scoring fewer runs in first class cricket than they used to what's going on and there's a big forensic investigation from the WCM team to work out why that is
1: yeah, so this has been uh, a topic close to the heart of the editor-in-chief of the magazine, Phil Walker, for some time. So the cover here just simply reads The Red Bull Crisis, Special Investigation. And they spend about 15 pages going through every element of it at the moment, which is most worthwhile read. And Phil himself is involved. They talk about Joe Root and the way he sets himself up. John Stern's involved in uh, this part of the publication as well. As is James Wallace, I look at like Marnus Labuschagne and players around the world and how they've changed techniques and came out uh, better for it and and comparing and contrasting that to what's going on in the England team at the moment. So, uh, yes, that will be a topic of ferocious consideration against India, I suspect, uh, when they uh, start their series here in in the next fortnight, which will be in August, which is what this magazine says, the August edition. So it's appropriate Mm. that in August we're talking about batting techniques.
3: Yes. Well, it is currently July, but in August we will be talking about that and you will be reading about that. A bunch of other big pieces in the MAG this month. A couple of big interviews. Safraz Nawaz, the inventor of reverse swing, uh, (laughs) for want of a better description, the, the genius behind it originally. Uh, has an interview about that um, Taha Hashim is interviewing Elise Perry About her remarkable career I've got a long essay from Suresh Menon uh, Who's a lovely writer About the changing shapes and lines Of Indian batsmanship is how he describes it And then over to New Zealand Where Rod Edmund is celebrating The most significant week in Kiwi
1: cricket history So bouncing around the cricket world With all of those That's an especially lovely piece That that bit by Rod Edmund Really capturing the, the, the importance Of what they were able to achieve at Southampton A couple of weeks ago Uh, The magazine Joe Harmon uh, Previews to 100 Uh, Andrew Miller Has a column About what he describes As the vapidly awful PR uh, Which blighted The gestation Of the 100 So draw your own Conclusions there Ben Jones Former guest of the show He's writing about His golden summer 2013 When he fell in love With Ian Bell Lovely Andy Zoltzman, With his monthly feature At the back of the mag Revealing all the facts And stats Around the number 46 More than strictly necessary necessary according to the magazine description but i always want more when it comes to results izzy westbury uh, in her column uh he was arguing the game isn't as traditional as she claims it is a lot of the time so Izzy, as usual coming at things from a slightly different vantage point
3: yeah and uh, lizzie ammon with her column in there scott oliver as well um, the regular columnists and the county files which is All the in-depth stuff on county cricket, interviews with George Garton, Keaton Jennings and Simon Harmer, uh, lots going on in the magazine. It's always an excellent read month in, month out, and you can get hold of it very cheaply, particularly if you do the digital subscription. It's 44% off if you (laughs) use the link that's in our show notes. It's bit.ly, as in the shortened link, bit.ly slash w c m t f w which stands for Wisdom Cricket Monthly, the final word. You don't need to remember that. It's in the show notes. uh, You can click that. It's like 10 quid for six months. It's so cheap.
1: It's so cheap. It's 10 quid for six editions or 15 Australian dollars. You can work out what currency that turns out to be for you. It's Mm -hmm. never increased. In the time that we've had this deal going, about 18 months now, it's always remained the same. No inflation Mm -hmm. built into that. No Mm -hmm. CPI index. Purely... What it says on the tin, 44% off the best cricket magazine in the world, bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW. It's another belting edition right in the middle of summer.
3: G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon.
1: This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and I am sitting uh, with our Guests for the show, perhaps for the first time in the same room as a guest for I don't know 14, 15 months, and it couldn't be anyone better than Claire Connor, the Czar of women's cricket at the ECB, chair of the ICC Women's Cricket Committee since 2012, and soon to be the MCC president, the first woman to hold that role in 234 years. Thanks for having a chat with us.
2: Absolute pleasure. Looking forward to
1: it. I don't even really know where to start in some respects, other than to say that today's a massive day for you personally and English cricket. When you're finished with us, you're off to the Oval to watch the 100, the first night of the 100. A competition, as it's been reported, you had a fair bit of input in initially. I mean, there must be a degree of excitement, anxiety perhaps as well to some extent.
2: Yeah, a real mixture. Um, uh, It's great to be with you, Adam, and it's uh, it's a a, a really, uh, I suppose... A mixture of excitement, a bit of anxiety, just very desperate for it to go well for everybody who's worked so hard on it, yeah. um, particularly the players. Um, I want the, you know, it's, we're, we're starting the competition with a, a women's game. Um, followed by obviously a men's game tomorrow also at the Oval and then thereafter double headers. So the women have got centre stage as the tournament gets underway and, you know, I think it's been such a long time coming now, you know, postponed last year um, due to the pandemic and... Um, a a huge amount of I think resilience across the team who are delivering it and it's obviously come in for a lot of scrutiny and everybody's got a view on it and you know every view from you know super excited to lots of less positive views so hopefully it'll get underway with a bang it'll be kind of cricket reimagined to some degree with some of the tweaks to the playing conditions not least 20 balls fewer on each side Um, and yeah, look, for the women's game, it's it's a really, hopefully a really powerful vehicle to show that, show how far the women's game has come and to show that the ECB and the game across this country are serious about giving real prominence to our female players, both from here and around the world. And with the double headers, you know, huge broadcast opportunities and the chance to you know, this whole idea, a bit like you've seen, obviously, and we've all seen with the Big Bash and the Women's Big Bash, this idea of one club, two teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to have it, you know, starting with men's, the men and the women from the outset, I think, is hopefully sending a powerful signal to the game about how we want the competition to work and how we see it as a, you know, as, as providing equal opportunities for our male and female players.
1: I was thinking about your last 24 hours, <laughs> So, you're here at the moment. The trains weren't working this morning. You had to drive (laughs) up to London instead of getting the train up as you normally would. Uh, Obviously, the hundred starting today. Um, You've got responsibilities more broadly as an ECB board member. You've got a story in the press last night that was quite critical, and not unreasonably so, about pay for women in this competition. Brisbane win the Olympic Games this morning. I mean, you were instrumental in getting cricket into the Commonwealth Games next year. I mean, there's a lot to... Juggle around in your head, parrying balls out of the net on on one front, trying to kick goals down the other end on the other. I mean, it it feels like a standard day for you, but keeping all that going at the same time must be a real challenge, a bit of a tightrope.
2: Yeah, it is a bit like that, you know, even, you know, pandemic aside, it's sometimes a kind of real collision, as you say, of things going on and lots of very different relationships to manage, and, you know, some huge goals that we are kicking, you know, ahead of. Birmingham next year for com games um, next next week, next Wednesday is a year to go, um, 28th of July. So that's a, another big moment uh, for cricket to have a presence in that wider sports narrative and landscape. And yeah at the hundred, you know we've paused our two other domestic women's competitions for the time being Rachel Hare Flint Trophy and the Charlotte Edwards Cup. We've just concluded a, a, a what I think's been a remarkable series against India that has um, you know kind of blazed some new names into the the kind of the women's cricket pantheon i suppose and new zealand arriving in a few weeks time to conclude the international summer and then you add in as you say kind of icc commitments mcc uh, president elect or de- i i got told off the other day for call or someone told me off for referring to the myself as the mcc president-elect and I was reminded that nobody elected me Mm -hmm. um, and that I was the which was you know slightly uh, you know quite yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so those kind of um, those interactions are all starting in earnest as well so yeah I think sometimes the juggling is successful sometimes you feel like you're wobbling a bit and I think I've I've learned a huge amount over the recent years about acknowledging you know i've probably always been a bit of a control freak and actually acknowledging that it's okay to to wobble and um ask for more help and that you know probably throw the pandemic in there as well it's taught us all hasn't it that we're not in control and um and you know things can change pretty damn quickly with you know with whatever it might be so the pace of all that change has been really exhilarating sometimes overwhelming Um, but certainly an adventure, yeah.
3: Claire, as far as the 100 goes, obviously there would have been no good time for a pandemic to come along, but it it feels like there couldn't have been a worse time for the ECB than 2020 when all of the the money, the resources, the attention that have been put into the new competition and then it had to be put back and then coming in this year with all of the constraints and the, the, the possible dangers that could face it over the next few weeks. What's the the damage been materially by having to delay it and how much is salvageable? What can be uh, gained as compared to how your best case scenario might have been, say, 18 months ago? It would be a very different best case scenario now.
2: Yeah, I think um I I mean I'm I'm quite philosophical about it, Jeff, and I think we've we've had to become that way. I think um you know, we're not going to have capacity crowds. So that's hugely disappointing after already a year of postponement. You know, who would have thought we would still be in this position where we're all on tenterhooks about this weird period that we're in with mask wearing just, you know, essentially stopping and, you know, Freedom Day being a kind of terrible expression, but so many restrictions being lifted. But yet we are, we still feel, I think, quite restricted and worried about this tournament even concluding. Um, On the 21st of August, because if we lose a team um, because of, uh, you know, because of some a couple of positive cases and then close contacts taking out a whole team, as we've seen recently with England men ahead of the ODI series against Pakistan and a couple of men's county teams, you know, the whole tournament, it's in jeopardy. Right. And that's that's a really weird place to be. And we talk about it as a leadership team every day. So it's pretty tiring. It's disappointing that we're in this position. Um, but I think it's, you know, I'm a half glass full person and I think it's it's taught all of us about being kind of agile, being quite philosophical about things which are beyond our control. Um, you know, we're a leadership team probably who, who want to control things um, because that's what gets you, I suppose, into those kind of positions. And we're driven to do that. And this has taught us all that... No amount of kind of willpower and uh, determination can control outcomes. What it can do, though, is it can really build team spirit and it can, I think, teach you a lot as leaders about how to keep your... You know, we've got people across the organisation who are on their knees because of the last 18 months and what we have had to deliver in very difficult... And look, by, by no means am I putting sport and cricket specifically into any kind of category that is more important or more um, strained than than loads of other sectors um, in this country and around the world. But it it has been exhausting. And we've got, you know, our events team, our logistics teams, our operations teams, our medical teams, our players, our, you know, everybody in the organisation really is just about kind of hanging in there and so you know everyone is so determined for this competition to do well Um, whether you work specifically on the hundred or whether you are somebody who works in the finance team or somebody who works in the events team everybody is so invested in it and we as an organization have been behind it now for several years so uh, you know it's such a good question and what is yes we're disappointed and we don't know how we will what the impact of the 100 will be this year and I suppose in the immediate kind of aftermath of this year compared to what it could have been had we not been through a pandemic and had everything been much more perfect and in our control. But I'm sure that it is still going to be a game changer. I think the for the women's game particularly, it's going to be a game changer. Um, it's not perfect. Nothing is but I think we can still make a huge success of it and take the sport to new people that we haven't reached before.
1: Last question about the here and now before we go back and tell your story of your life in cricket. You've been a change agent in so many ways, and we'll go through that as a player, as a captain, as an administrator across the board. You've pushed so hard for professionalism uh, for women in England and across the world, domestic level too. Uh, Yesterday, when that story does emerge about the frustration some players have about the relative incomes for women playing in the 100 against men. I mean, you must be so torn as an administrator who's been overseeing the decisions, but equally someone who obviously wants to see women paid more. How do you come at a story like that? Do you just have to kind of accept that you can't control that at this stage? Or does it still kind of get in your head a little bit that you are trying to do everything all at the same time?
2: I was so disappointed when I saw that story. Not, not for me at all, but for the competition and the bigger picture journey that we're on because and i know that's a cliche the the whole you know we're on a journey with this around parity and equal pay um and respect and equal treatment and all of that what the hundred is you know what the hundred is doing is it's paying our top players in this country and overseas um from overseas um As well, if not better, and I know we've got to keep pushing that standard, but it's paying those players as well, if not better, than most, if not all, comparable domestic women's sports tournaments that last a month anywhere in the world, team sports tournaments. Now, okay, you know, the the stark comparison of Heather Knight captaining London Spirit alongside Owen Morgan captaining London Spirit, both World Cup winners... Um, both, you know, complete heroes for us in the sport. The fact that the pay gap is is large is a reality that doesn't sit comfortably with any of us. Um, we spoke about it, you know, we spoke as a leadership team meeting again about it this morning uh, at a leadership team meeting. And, you know, I think we have to... We have to be really realistic about what we can do. So it's kind of one of the lessons of my own career. I think is you have to be really realistic about what you can do quickly, and what where you can accelerate change and and making things better, and where some things are just going to take a bit longer. And it's not perfect again, um, but it's still it, it will still be a groundbreaking tournament for women's sport. I hope, and that is my hope and. I'm really looking forward to being able to look 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 back on this month. And then we go again and we press forward again for, for a, another improvement next year.
3: Claire, let's wind back to the start. Your childhood, your early years, you described your upbringing yourself as very privileged. Um, you were at a private school where lots of cricket was played. You were an only child until 11, so you were playing with a lot of boys, captaining boys' teams at under 10s and under 16s. What was it about your childhood that made cricket something that you wanted to do uh, and, and that led to you being so so much in the middle of it as well rather than on the fringes?
2: Um, you've done a lot of research there, Jeff. <laughs> um, I think I've, I, I, I've often wondered about this kind of, you know, where a passion comes from in life, whether it's, you know, for me, cricket... You know, for someone else, ballet, for someone else playing the violin, um, for you guys making amazing podcasts. Where does, you know, where does that come from? Is it, is it, um, is it in you from a really young age or, or is it kind of more nurtured? What I can remember, and I've said this a few times, but it's the truth. It, it, you know, it's true and it's relevant to the question, is that I can't remember not being in love with cricket. So I can remember being very, very young and begging my dad to throw balls um, at me and uh, whether batting or catching practice when he would get home from work at seven o'clock at night, really tired after a long day. I can remember wanting to understand how he was linseed oiling and... um, sandpapering his bat and being excited going to the DIY shop to buy sandpaper. That's how weird I was
1: <laughs> That's very reliable. <laughs> so weird. Very reliable. And the
2: smell, I can smell it now. I can I can smell the linseed oil. I can I can remember that is so evocative. Mm. Um and being with Dad in the garden, with him getting ready for a club game and going oh. through that it was a you know rituals, you know, family rituals for us. Um stereotypically, mum was in the kitchen making the teas and I was with dad, um, less stereotypically learning how to sandpaper a cricket bat in the garden. Um, So, you know, and I remember as well, if I couldn't go to cricket with dad, uh, properly tantruming, having a tantrum, screaming at my mum, screaming on the doorstep, not wanting to go back inside, crying, watching my dad drive off to cricket. So... I don't know where it started or quite how it started, but it was a very, I was. It was a love affair that started from a really young age. I adored my dad. I adored my mum. Uh, my mum sadly died seven years ago, and yeah. I, and as you say, I was an only child until um, my little brother came along when I was nearly eleven. So uh, very, very kind of very tight the three of us, um, and our. You know, my childhood was kind of built around the cricket club. I was, again, the privilege of growing up in a completely rural, idyllic setting. I don't doubt either of you have been there. It's a cricket club called Preston Nomads in the South Downs. Um, I've, I've lived in Brighton Hove all my life, and a cricket club at the foot of Devil's Dyke in the South Downs with uh, just the most beautiful place to grow up and... Be in love with a sport that, for whatever reason, I didn't feel like an outsider in. Even though, for so many years, there were there were no other girls um, uh, doing what I was doing, or you know, anywhere anywhere close to me in that in that setting.
1: So there's your dad, who's this big influence, and obviously your school was as well, allowing you to play in in the first team. Uh, with all boys, uh, visiting Zimbabwe, am I right in saying, to play on a trip uh, as a young girl in, mm. in a boys' group. Yeah. I mean, these are opportunities that, of course, as you acknowledge, they're, they're partly a function of privilege, but also um, as a woman and a girl, extremely unusual. Mm. I mean, not many girls would get the chance to to do what you did at that age in that quite sophisticated boy setup.
2: Yeah, that's right, and it gave me an amazing grounding and... It's something I'm thinking about a lot at the moment as to why I felt so included um, when I was such a, um, if you like, a, an, an oddity in that kind of all-male environment. Yeah, look, very kind of halcyon days, lovely school, um, uh, started playing with, in the, as you've said, Jeff, playing in boys' teams from a, a young age, under 10s through to the first 11 as the only girl. And kind of unconditional support from family and teachers and coaches. My my first I had two coaches of note at school. James McIntosh, who um made me captain of the under ten boys boys team. He was a very old fashioned history teacher. So why he you know, he was really kind of old school, kind of kind of prep school teacher. Um, but he he gave me that opportunity so that was my first kind of captaincy experience as a nine-year-old and we had an unbeaten season Uh, and uh, he died when I was at university and had requested that I scatter his ashes on our cricket pitch at school so that was a humbling moment and um, and then John Spencer who coached me for a couple of years in the sixth form um, the former Sussex fast bowler um, and he gave me real belief. He spent so much time with me, giving me extra training. I had so you know that whole thing about our you know hours of hours of practice and skill development, and um, I had so many hours of extra coaching from him until dark, you know, after school. Um, and that gave me the chance to play in the in the boys' first team. And as you say, the the tour to Zimbabwe, you know, was crikey. That was a that was a shock to that culture and to those young men. Um, we toured Zimbabwe. Sadly, I, I broke my hand batting in the opening game on that tour. I was opening the batting and I broke my hand and that was the end of my tour. So uh, it meant that I had the pleasure of meeting Henry Alonga off the pitch. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, he was playing for Plumtree. Plumtree first 11 and he took seven for not many against us <laughs> i wasn't one of them because by then i already had a broken hand but um we had a, a braai or a, a barbecue as we call it but a braai after the game and uh yeah chatted to him uh, as a as an 18 year old young woman and ended up working with him for channel 4 10 years later so yeah lovely times and amazing opportunities uh that very few people are afforded um and uh yeah very grateful
3: I'm interested that you say that you never felt excluded because, you know, my recollection of adolescence is that it's such a seething pit of um, insecurity about being on the outer, not belonging, and and when it's something as fundamental as, you know, the way that teenage boys treat teenage girls and, and on it goes into adulthood, um, it, it would be very easy to feel excluded in that sort of in, environment. Do, have you come up with any answers as to why you felt comfortable or, or were there instances when you weren't included?
2: I, weirdly, I can't remember feeling excluded ever. Um, the, the boys at my cricket club and at school were all like brothers um i think they saw me they s- saw me as more of a just a a teammate a, a boy almost than um and i think uh, one of the answers i've come up with i think is that as you know when you go through age groups you essentially play with the same teammates mm-hmm. for a number of years and you play against the same teammates if you're on a club or a school circuit like i was year after you know summer after summer so they didn't I don't know, I'd love, maybe worth, it would be worth me talking to some of them. I think they, they could see, I, you know, I, was, I had my place on merit and they just treated me like one of the boys. And, you know, I think, weirdly, I was so lucky I didn't have, maybe because of those experiences, I didn't struggle with the whole teenage um, trials and tribulations and anxieties that probably the majority do you know, boys and girls and sport, I think, and that place in sport sort of gave me such, gave me real confidence and gave me stability and a very, a a lovely life. You know, I was, I played a lot of hockey and squash as well. Um, I, I, didn't really like netball, um, which is funny, isn't it? Because that's the, you know, the, the real all girl sport of all of those. And, uh, if anything, you know, I've I've become more insecure. I was thinking about this actually in preparation for chatting to you both. I've probably become more insecure and more uncertain as I've got older. And I I, I see that in a way as, God, I'm just so lucky that I had that amazing childhood, that I didn't, that I, I was on track and um, fit and healthy and did well in sport and did well at school and went to uni and, and all of that was just a, uh, came, you know, not easily at all, but it came without real struggle. Um, and it, I, I've, you know, there's more. I've, I've, you know, maybe had it the other way around. I don't know. Maybe as we get older, we do, uh, we do realize the world is is a challenge, and it's. Uh, we we do feel more uncertain. Um, but certainly, I had a, a an amazing childhood.
1: You, you've already referred to how important home is to you, your corner of the world and that family unit, you know, strong, sporting, dominant figure in in, in cricket with your dad and your mum and and the importance of the three of you, then your younger brother, then going away to the other side of the country, going to um, study at at Manchester when you you reach university age. I I suppose that must've been tough for you given uh, that close bond you had to home.
2: Yeah, it was really tough. And probably one of the things that I would change, I think, it proved just difficult, not only with kind of being away from family and friends and the sea, Um, you know, I've always lived by the sea, and I I felt really strange being landlocked. But it was just a struggle, really, with logistics, just with living so far away. I was in a relationship as well with someone a few years older than me, um, who was down in Sussex. So the You know, we'd started seeing each other just before university, and so that was you know that was challenging. And you know, within my in my first term at Manchester University, I was picked to go on a big tour to India, my first big England tour. So I just turned nineteen, and yeah, I missed. I think you know, university. I don't know, university would have started in the September of um, uh, what would it have been, nineteen ninety five, and. I went to India for from early November for the rest of that term. So it was hard to kind of settle in. It certainly wasn't the crazy, wild freshers' term or freshers' year um, that the majority have, because I was trying to balance so many different things. Um, I was, you know, trying to take my my degree seriously. I read English literature, which is my other big big passion, other than cricket and yeah trying to balance that and making a good start to uni with also a relationship a long way away my family a long way away and being picked for England trying to work out how to train and where to get support and coaching up there I trained with the Manchester University men's team and had to travel over to Headingley that was my closest back in back then we had like regional women's training sessions and my my closest one was over at Headingley so it was a, a, a balancing act back then and um Uh, I guess maybe thinking about it and kind of talking it out loud there, going back to the beginning of our chat, it sort of set me up maybe for learning how to balance lots of different kind of priorities and things.
3: Those first few years of your England career, you're there at a period where things are changing really fast. You mentioned '95 starting there when... You're still a teenager on debut, that's still the kind of period where you're having to buy your own uniforms in order to play for England um, the ECB aren't even running English women's cricket at that point they take over in 97 and then by 99 you're on televised games, Sky have started broadcasting women's games, you take a hat trick on TV and then in 2000 you're the captain at the age of 23 in a pretty turbulent time for uh, English women's cricket those first few years, you're doing this while teaching as well, um, you're your teaching job at Brighton College. It, it, it must have been a, a pretty bewildering spin through those first few years.
2: Yeah, it was. Um, I, apart from maybe not uh, a different university in terms of location, I wouldn't change much. And, um, you know, I'm often asked completely, inevitably, you know, do you wish you were playing now? And, you know, how do your playing day, you know, comparing your play, my playing days with, with those of, you know, some of our, our England players, or uh, and some of our young domestic players now who are making their way as professional, semi-professional. And I don't think I would have changed that much. It was an amazing experience. You're right, I had to pay for my, my blazer and £500 pounds towards my flight um, to go to India in '95. I had to then sort of juggle the next few years to get my degree. And then, as you say, pretty much uh, after, after that, uh, I, I, it was the a real baptism of fire, becoming captain, Um, midway through a tour to Australia and New Zealand and yeah a bit of a whirlwind I suppose all of it you know um, in a way I suppose I have a little bit of sadness that I, I it was probably such a whirlwind that it was very hard to savour because there was so much going on and it was you know, moving so quickly, and 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 as you say, Jeff, around the sort of late nineties, as a player, you know, as a player, you're quite oblivious to lots of things from an administrative point of view. Uh, as I realise now, as an administrator, the players, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they they just they just crack on and love what they're doing. Um, but as a player, I suppose I was becoming aware of you know the the whole you know the Women's Cricket Association merging with the or being. Uh, women's cricket coming under the auspices of the ECB and what that meant. And then as England captain, you know, how I kind of fed into the ECB as England captain. And if you like, had a sort of reporting line into Hugh Morris, who was the then... MD of of England cricket. We started to get a little bit of recognition and a bit of support with Vodafone coming on board as the England women's sponsor as well as the men's sponsor. We moved from culottes to trousers um, around that time, so uh, slightly fewer grass burns on the knees. And uh, we were the recipients of some um, UK sports kind of world-class performance pathway funding to the tune of, I don't know, I think £600 a month I received. So that helped a bit. And so I was aware that things were kind of changing with the position of women's cricket, with all of those little factors. And I think becoming England captain was without doubt, you know, one of the top couple of most sort of proudest moments. And I, I think I did take that role very seriously Um, because I I knew that, I think I realised then that the kind of winds of change were, there was real possibility around the women's game. We were touring more, as you say, Sky were on board. As captain, there was more, I I knew, I could feel there was more and more media interest. And, you know, it it felt like something was building. Um, Bewildering, I think was a word you used. It was pretty bewildering. Um, And... I just wish I could remember some of it a bit better.
3: Yeah, I was wondering if you you ever get the chance to savor um, things in retrospect that you didn't get to savor at the time.
2: Yeah, it's it's. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's uh, if it's me or it's just if it's common to anybody who's you know had a busy life. But there are real kind of gaps in my memory. Um, you know, especially when I really engage my brain, and I, I did something recently. Uh, Um, a a webinar for leaders in performance and a couple of weeks ago and I I was really trying to prepare for it well and uh, knowing that you know some real kind of performance questions were coming my way not just as an an administrator but and I was trying to remember uh, you know kind of how I felt as a as a player what, what what my you know kind of what my beliefs were around performance and around preparation and and it, it was just such a blur you know it, it is a, a lot of it is a blur because i was charging from teaching hamlet to then going and running a maybe a girls hockey session to then trying to stuff some food down my throat to then go and do a weight session at 7 at night to then try and keep in contact with friends and family and it was a it was a lot to do and so i think one of the one of the Consequences of that is that I can't remember much of it, or some of it, um, in in really really clear detail. And that changed actually. You know, I I think my without kind of taking us forward too too much. But that I think I did have that opportunity to savour things and slow down when I took a sabbatical from teaching in my last two years and that was a real gift that i am forever thankful um to my then headmaster dr anthony Seldon, who who kind of gave me that opportunity to take a sabbatical from teaching and i had two years my last two years as as england captain culminating in in obviously the ashes win um in in 05 i had two years to sample what it was like to be a male cricketer so I had two years where I just did some, I don't say just in a demeaning way, but I, was, I, I, did, I just did some media work. Um, I did some stuff for Channel 4 and the cricket show. I did a bit of writing for The Observer, a bit for BBC. And that was enough. You know, that was uh, just about a, a, a similar income to my teaching income, but gave me so much more space and time to be a proper cricketer. And I think actually it wasn't really until those last two years that I performed and felt like I really deserve, in a way like almost deserving because it, it was only then that I felt I really gave what I wanted to give to it, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: no, it does. I, I think it's interesting that sort of in my pot of the intro before, I didn't even mention you as a player and as a captain. Uh, I think when Richie Benno was spoken of towards the end of his broadcasting career, that was kind of it, wasn't it? That people didn't realise that this guy was... A player. A a real player. Like a proper, serious Australian captain for a long stretch of time. You know, 248 test wickets, all those runs. Um, And yet with you, a similar thing kind of happens. And we should celebrate your cricketing career. I mean, you talk of 05, getting beaten up by Australia, as you did for the majority of your career... You're building. Mm. You're building towards that 05 Ashes series. Slowly but surely, Mm. the the team's galvanising under your leadership. You know, you're a senior player. Um, you know, between times, Jeff mentioned your hat trick on television. It's it, it's a small but important point, isn't it, that when Sky made their 25 years of women's cricket package a couple of weeks ago. Yeah,
2: I slipped them a few bob to <laughs> pop, <laughs> well, pop that in. <laughs> I think we all enjoyed
1: that, didn't we? Because it was, it was just a lovely thing really. to, to, to see you do your thing because we think of you as an administrator first uh, in this era. But then 05 comes around and it's been 42 years since England have beaten Australia for the women's ashes and there you are overseeing it in style as well in a test match that still gets spoken of by everybody that played in it um i mean i know your career doesn't last much longer after that and we'll come to that in a moment but 05 steering the ship being on top of the open top bus in trafalgar square with the men when they do the job at the oval uh, later in the summer i mean mm. that is that is a priceless yeah, part of your career absolutely
2: magical uh, yeah just a, a completely uh, an amazing summer for so many reasons Most importantly, because as you've said, the kind of the curse was lifted. So you know, I'd played for England for ten years by then and never beaten Australia, and that's you know that's that's quite damaging. (laughs) You, um, it's pretty damaging to be honest. Um, I've just about I'm just about friends with Belinda Clark now after about ten years of sitting on ICC committees with her. We're mates now, so. That summer was, um, yeah, it was just wonderful. You know, the men's Ashes obviously was was um, taking amazing twists and turns, and you know, winning people over to cricket um, through their performances. So there was this lovely buzz, I think, around the country that summer for cricket. So to be part of that. And then to share, as you say, the celebrations in Trafalgar Square, the open-top bus ride. My family came and made a banner at the last moment and were colouring it on the train, colouring it in on the train. <laughs> and I actually saw them. Can you believe that from the bus, um, with however thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people spilling out over those streets in the, in the build-up to Traf- the route into Trafalgar Square? And I saw them. So they, the fact that they were there was was also amazing. And yeah, that moment where we beat Australia that was so special and God so emotional for so many reasons and to see I genuinely I've said this before but it's one of the most it's so clear to me now that 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 we as a team and obviously I, I stood down sh- shortly after that but those players walked taller after that summer lots of them had played for a long time and they too they had that you know that real kind of curse, or that um, sort of Damocles that had that lifted, and and did something very, very special. And so um, it was a, a really, really wonderful, wonderful summer. And it capped the. It was the end of my sabbatical. I went back to teaching the next day. I, I actually, after those after those celebrations um, in London, we finished up at a function at Lord's with our families. And it was really still and and beautiful and really lovely to have all of our families in the long room. And then I got in the car and I drove Holly Colvin, who was about 12. No, she was, what was she, 16? I think 16. I drove Holly Colvin back to boarding school because she was a Brighton College pupil um, and restarted my, my teaching life. Um, and I can remember that really, really clearly and just thinking, God, what a... What a time.
3: So what, what's the contrast like between that day and the next? Do you sort of wake up feeling like it was all a dream?
1: Well, it's a bit like what, I mean, Jeff, what Liam Plunkett said when they won the World Cup in mm. 2019, saying, um, you know, two days later you're, you're on the couch watching Netflix and, you, you know, you're desolate. I mean, maybe not quite the same yeah. for you because yeah. you had or, something or directly Mark, to go Mark to. Mark Wood driving home that night. Yeah, with, like, yeah. Um, yeah. The emotional. It, Knowing it. you've reached that peak, I can...
2: Yeah, re- really. I think the, the, the slight difference was that obviously our ashes had finished... Maybe a month, three weeks or so before. So obviously the celebrations happened, didn't they? After the men finished at the Oval, so we had, if you like, we'd had our, we'd had our own moment and our own celebrations when we when we won the Ashes a few weeks before. So we'd I'd already had that, if you like, the Liam Liam Plunkett after the actual World Cup final the next day kind of feeling that had sort of been and gone. But this almost was like a second. Nearly said second wave then, which is sort of not good, not good uh, language in the context of the pandemic, is it? But it was like a second wave of exhilaration, and it was really lovely to get back together with the team. So we'd finished, and we'd separate, gone our separate ways for a few weeks, um, and then we met up, and we were paraded. We were, we did a a lap of honour with our ashes around the men's, uh, around the oval in the men's tea interval, and I did an interview with Mark Nicholas and. Then we went out for dinner as a team on the on the Thames, and I think we were treated to that by the by was it Vodafone? It must have been Vodafone in that same summer. So we had a lovely. It was lovely for us to be back together as a group uh, because we'd already kind of disbanded a few weeks before, and then. And then to go and uh, go and meet up with the men for the start of the Open Top bus, bus ride the next morning. So, yes, it was. It was weird to leave all of that unbelievable excitement and national, this feeling of just, those, that bus ride through London was just incredible. You know, people swinging off, you know, office roofs and literally lampposts on top of telephone booths. And I've never seen anything like it. So... Yeah, I don't really remember the feeling of getting up the next day to go into work and back to teaching. I don't remember that really clearly. I do, but I do remember the drive back with Holly, and there was something lovely about that. You know, she, you know, I was, you know, a veteran of the team by then, and and Holly was a sixteen-year-old with this whole, you know, career ahead of her, um, and I was kind of taking her back to school, and it was the school I went to. Uh,
3: that's the point where you pulled the pin on playing, your your ankle was busted, you needed to have surgery on it. Um, you're not yet 30 at this point. You've been in the captain's job for six years and it's pretty hard graft doing that job. If you look back at it now, do you think, say, if you'd had access to modern rehab and, and support for the injury, would you have gone on? Or was it more that you were just fried after having spent that long in the job and that was enough? Or, or was it more that having that sort of wonderful cathartic moment was enough and and that that was the right time to stop?
2: Yeah, I... I think I was, yes, I needed the ankle surgery, Jeff, but I I could probably have carried on with that with kind of strength work and injections. And actually you talk about kind of the modern era of rehab and science and medicine. I had to spend, I referred to it at the time as boot camp because to get through the 2005 World Cup in South Africa followed pretty soon after by the ashes, I had to go and spend a month uh, at Loughborough and live in the Loughborough accommodation for a month and do... Literally, far, probably five hours a day of strength work and fitness work to get my my right kind of lower leg ready or strong enough to be able to do the World Cup and the Ashes. So I was lucky. I did get, you know, again, you know, we weren't prof- we weren't a, we weren't professional cricketers then, but the National Cricket Performance Centre was still our uh, England women's base then, and I was looked after brilliantly. I did all sorts of of work to to get through that period so it wasn't so much the physical um <laughs> deterioration that um that made me uh realize it was time to to leave it was more the mental and emotional burnout i i was genuinely kind of mentally exhausted and so i, I could feel that myself and i knew that i wouldn't be giving of my best of my best and i knew that I, well, I obviously had this. I was very, very lucky, knowing that I had Charlotte Edwards, CBE. Uh, she wasn't CBE then, obviously, but I had this, um, uh, this you know, f- unbelievable cricketer and cricket brain and leader of people, really ready. And I think if if I if that hadn't been the case, I might have been tempted to do another year. But I think she was so ready, and. I do think as well that there is only so much of a of one voice that a team can take. Um you know they'd listened to me for for 6 years and you when you're when you are you, you know you to keep your own energy up and I never lacked like kind of motivation at all but to keep my own sort of emotional energy and and uh, uh my own sort of the, the the voice of the captain in cricket is as you both know, really important, and so I felt that my own sort of voice. Whilst we 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 had achieved some some brilliant things, yes, Jeff, as you as you say, that kind of cathar that cathartic. Right, we've done that big thing that I, we've needed to do for a number of years, coupled with Charlotte Edwards is ready, um, and I'm 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 shattered. Yeah, uh, a, 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 a kind of a real mixture of mixture of reasons but I, I I look back on those, on making that decision, I can, th- that is very vivid to me, I can remember agonising over it and shedding so many tears with my mum and dad talking it through because probably get emotional now, like who gives that up, you know that's a that's a, a huge thing to give away but it's, I knew it was better to give it away with someone completely primed and ready to do it than be asked to leave in a year or two years because that would have broken my heart.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. And the next two years, you kind of revert back to what you were doing. Yeah, granted, media work and there's sort of well-celebrated examples of you working on television as early as 2003, actually. Looking back at it, you were, you were commentating on, on Jimmy Anderson's debut uh, test match at Lords in, in 2003. But after that diversion and a return to teaching, cricket drags you back in almost immediately, really.
0: Yes. When you
1: look at it, there's not much of a gap between you retiring and becoming the, the boss of England women's cricket, or the head of mm. women's cricket, as it was then called. That can't be easy, can it? Sort of stepping away from being the captain and then going, actually, no, I'll take an administrative position early 30s, you know, most of the team you'd been alongside in the dressing room for the previous however many years. I mean, was there a temptation to go, you know what, no, I'm going to be a barista in South America. Like, I want nothing to do with <laughs> um, cricket for a while, given to that point it had been so much a part of your identity as a mm. player and as a human no, being, a really. really good
2: question. A really good question, and I think about that a lot now. I don't think I did have those... Um, those thoughts at the time, I think about it a lot now and how my kind of identity and is so wrapped up in in my sort of cricket identity, my, you know, my own kind of sense of self. And and I think that's that's a double edged sword, actually. I think there's something really beautiful about that in terms of your purpose in life. But also uh, this, there, you know, there's there's something less there are challenges with that, too, um, around around sort of your own my own sort of sense of myself but anyway to the actual question um yeah I I it was I never ever expected to go into cricket administration ever I I thought I would be I had a a really clear career path in mind uh, in teaching I loved teaching um I have felt a really strong sense of gratitude to the to my job as a teacher because and to the school not of obviously very a very personal attachment to it because it's where I went as a pupil and 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 as we've discussed it's where my you know my hours of cricket training all really started as a as a young player but um I was devoted to teaching um I'd missed it um when I had had those couple of years away from it albeit that was a a wonderful couple of years and a as I say a real a real gift but I I thought you know it it was it was a really hard decision to leave teaching because I, you know, whilst I knew cricket and I had played cricket and I had a reputation, you know, albeit a, a low profile back then compared with, you know, the likes of, of Heather and, the, and, and Lottie when, when by the time she finished, it, there was a huge sense of trepidation about going into a role like that. I had no idea what that would entail. And, you know, even in my first few weeks, I had no idea what I was doing and where to start and what to do and what the job really even was. So it was a, it w- it was a tough decision. And I, in the end, I made it on the basis that teaching, you know, if, if I didn't make a good crack at things at the ECB and give myself a couple of years, and if I didn't like it or I wasn't very good at it, then I could easily go back into teaching. So that, that ended up being how I made that decision. Um, and it was a call from Hugh Morris, um, who, who I've mentioned already, who I'd you know, had a, built a relationship with as England captain. And he said, you know, We've, we, we, we're expanding this role and it'll be on the, you know, it'll be a, a senior role in the organisation. And there's, you know, huge commitment and um, opportunity for you to really build something. Um, so come on, come and give it a go. And at first, I said no. I I, 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 I did turn him, turn him, turn him down at first. And anyway, he he convinced me, and and uh, I'm glad he did.
3: <laughs> and I imagine that teaching Hamlet would give you a pretty good grounding <laughs> for a career where you know captains Something's and coaches and CEOs get knocked off every of five and minutes, <laughs> and it's all about the politics. Who's behind the tapestry? You know? <laughs>
2: yeah it was uh it was revenge and tragedy and
3: uh. <laughs> <laughs> the throne room scene um, in every cricket administration so the, you, you get that job first in 2007 um, and now I, I'm not saying that you didn't do anything for the first seven years I'm sure there was a lot going on behind the scenes but it feels like shit starts to get real around 2014 that's where the groundwork starts to make much more visible change. The national contracts come in for England women in 2014. Um, In 2016, you've got the change with Mark Robinson coming in as coach and and you've got to sack Charlotte Edwards as as captain and Lydia Greenway, You know, your, your old roommate and your close friend. You've got those relationships. You've got the Kia Super League coming in in 2016 and then building up to the Women's World Cup in 2017 that you've got to think about both as the country hosting it and also the country trying to win it. Which you end up doing and selling out lords in, in a way that we've spoken about at length on this show any number of times. That few years, suddenly everything seems to be moving in fast forward. Um, did it feel that way at the time, and, and was it a result of all of the work that had been going on in the previous seven years, or, or was it that was it changing attitudes at the top? Like, what made things start to move so fast?
2: Oh, Jeff, that's a massive question. Um... Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, I wish I'd done things a bit quicker. I'm a bit disappointed that it took from 2007 to 2014. You had a couldn't... couple of
1: World Cups in 2009. We're... Oh to be yeah,
2: fair. <laughs> when you when you spell it out like that, Jeff, I feel like we should have should have that shouldn't have been seven <laughs> years. But I think what was really important in those early years. So remember when I came into that role, there was there was virtually nothing. So there was, there were no full-time staff in the women's game, apart from a head coach. There was no science and medicine department for England women. There was no proper performance structure. There was no pathway. Um, and we had to build that. And that took, you know, when I start, I was looking at this the other day, when I started in year one, my budget was £400,000. And now it's, well, well over £10 million. So, you know, when you've only got a budget of £400,000, you're really in a a very kind of a, a strategic period of, okay, what do we need to do here? What are we designing? What are we trying to build? A lot of it was about relationships and establishing relationships across, frankly, the men's game around Loughborough and within science and medicine and elite coach development and... You know, that's before you even start to look at the sort of uh, sort of the building of the pathway, you know, England Women's Academy, which several years ago, Lisa Kightley was very influential in and, um, you know, obviously now returning to us as head coach for England women. So I think that period was was very much about building, gaining some traction. Um, Schedules were developing, you know, our kind of tours program was expanding. And and Adam, you just mentioned the 2009, you know, that was a massive, massive year. And I think that was, you know, that was obviously World Cup win in Australia. Obviously, that's huge. I think almost more important in terms of visibility and ICC relationships was the T20 win at Lourdes, um, which was the first combined men's and women's World T20 Obviously, with the first one being in 07, which was men's only. So that's interesting, actually, that from 2007, from starting a men's only T20 World Cup, two years later, we've got a, a joint men's and whip So that shows that there was some kind of real sudden progress there, I think, around the women's game and where it could belong and sit. And people felt confident it could sit on that kind of stage from an ICC global events point of view. So 2009 was, was huge. I'm not really sure, really, what happened between 2009 and 2014.
1: <laughs> well, did? it was steady as she goes, wasn't it? Because, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, national contracts you, in you 2000...
2: Probably, you're probably fresher with the information than I am. Well, but, national yeah.
1: contracts are such a, yes. a big thing, aren't they? I mean, it yeah. just changes the game. And oh, i tell you I a, big, a, big, a
2: Really, one big thing I should call out was yeah. the appointment of... Um, a, a good friend and, and former colleague, who is now CEO of Cricket Wales, called Leisha Hawkins, who came on board. I'll, I won't get the year right, but I would guess it was around. She joined our commercial department in around 2011, maybe. I'll probably be a bit wrong there. And she was given the maybe 2012. She was given the specific focus of England women's cricket. So she started to build. She was a brilliant. She is and was a brilliant networker and built some. Some started to really open up some conversations with, with sponsors. And that was, you know, those were a couple of really important years on and off the pitch in the build-up to, yeah, 2014, Central Contracts, Kia, first standalone commercial partner for England women's cricket. Really good deal, you know, not mega bucks, but really good in the context of the women's sport landscape then. And then building the Kia Super League to start in 2016.
1: 2016. Kia Super League, which a lot was made of in the lead-up, because obviously Australia got the jump with the Women's Big Bash League, and and you're playing catch-up there, having been ahead of Australia with with national contracts, and this quite, um, I think, quite healthy competitive tension built between the two nations, an arms race of sorts. In the middle of all of that, is, Jeff mentioned your old housemate Lot, and you and Robo Saka, and that must be brutal. I mean, I know that that was very hard for her at the time and and having to leave the job as England captain after a decade and having played with you and been there for 20 years and been a junior with you and the whole way through, uh, and then, you know, you and the new coach are essentially tapping her on the shoulder and saying, I'm sorry, it's over. Um, Where does that sit for you in terms of how difficult uh, more cricket decisions have been as part of your remit as the boss there at the ECB? Yeah,
2: without doubt, the most difficult decision I've ever had to make in my career. Um, and, and actually, the decision really in that, in, as you will know, the decision really has to, has to lie with the head coach. And yeah, it was sickening. Um, and look, the, the, the way I kind of got through it personally and professionally was to minute by minute remind myself that it wasn't about me. And it was um, uh, whatever I was feeling, you know, times it by a million and that's you know that's what she she would have been feeling um so yeah it was it was it was emotional it was you know as you've said we go we went back to young girls making our young england debuts together uh we met each other we she's probably told you this we first met each other in some cricket nets at an RAF ground we were having young england trials um it was somewhere in it might've been in, around bedfordshire and we'd never met and our both of our dads uh, were throwing balls to us in the nets to warm us up uh, before the game started. It was like a selection game, um, and uh, yeah, so um, unbelievably difficult. Uh, and you know, that's where you know that's where performance sport is. You know, really, really brutal, isn't it? Um, and she, you know, you 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 couldn't get a you couldn't get a human being who kind of lived and breathed england women's cricket more than more than charlotte edwards and so for her to have to let go of something that she wasn't frankly ready quite ready to let go of and you know that's the contrast with as i've said my own personal experience when i was no longer captain it was on my terms and um and to have to kind of inflict that pain um and disappointment is well, it's just completely gut wrenching and, and sickening. Um, and, and her response, though, uh, was whilst obviously in the immediate aftermath, very emotional and very angry and upset. She, the way she re- has responded, the way she did respond quickly, the way she handled herself at Lords. I think you were there, Adam, for the, the media work, me, the media uh, call we did. Um, in, in one of the boxes, and then look how she's flying now. Um, she's um, she's a complete, a complete legend. She's universally loved. Um, we've named a domestic competition after her, alongside the great Rachel, and um, and she's a dear friend.
3: <laughs> Claire, you take it back to 2014, at the start of you know where everything goes into fast forward. The other thing happening alongside that, of course, as you mentioned earlier, is that's when your mum passed away and you're going into all of this action without her, without this support. She's the one who encouraged you to take the ECB job in the first place when when you weren't sure about it. Um, Was the pace of work a solace at that point uh, or was it, I don't know, did it make you feel her loss more keenly because she wasn't there to see the great things that that you were doing it it must have been extraordinarily difficult to balance the demands with your own grief
2: yeah yeah it was and um, yeah I was yeah um, so summer of 2012 um, yeah mum wasn't feeling well and uh, dad and I were had this amazing day of... One of the days of our lives at Super Saturday. Oh, yeah. We were talking before we started yeah. recording about the 2012 games. Dad and I were at um, the, the Olympic Stadium for Super Saturday. What a night. I was there oh, as well. Incredible. Wasn't it brilliant? Yeah. And, uh, uh, but mum was at home, not feeling well. And, um, uh, and then we went on a family holiday the week after Super Saturday. Um, mum, dad, me, aged 36? And my brother, age 25, and um, we went to where we'd often been as a family. Them more than me, it's kind of their place, really, once when my brother was little. um, uh, Obviously, I was older enough, not really ever having a holiday, but just going on cricket (laughs) tour. Um, But we'd been there um, a a few times to a a beautiful place in Rhodes, uh, Greek Island, and um, mum wasn't well on that holiday, but she was so bloody determined to get through that holiday. But it was, uh, it, was, it was amazing that we, we had it together. But it was, it was quite obvious to see that she was very... She was... Yeah, I think we all predicted what was wrong. And, and I can remember standing on the beach and phoning our GP. And uh, we came home on, the, on our sh- scheduled day to come home. And I went with mum to the doctor the next day. And then within a week, she was diagnosed with cancer... She was actually diagnosed with cancer on my birthday, um, September the 1st, 2012. And um, and yeah, it was a, a brutal 18 months. She lived much longer than anyone thought was possible, which is typical. Um, and I, at the same time, I separated from my husband and went home and lived with my mum and dad for 14 months um, until my mum passed away. And... That period of time, I have such mixed feelings about. But in relation to work, which was what you were asking about, uh, the ECB gave me 100% unconditional support and trust to just do what I needed to do. And so thankfully, that meant that in that year, essentially during 2013, I barely went to work. Um, I did a lot of work from, from home, from, uh, from, from my parents' house. Um, but I I say that there were periods probably where I went in a lot more than others. And there were periods where I didn't go in at all really. And so, um, what I feel about that is a a bit like my relationship with Brighton College as an employer and where, where it all began. I, I do feel a, a huge debt of gratitude to the ECB for that support, um, because it was bloody unbelievable how they how they backed me and and obviously my colleagues around me who stepped up at the time Paul Paul Shaw, Jonathan Finch um, everybody just stepped up and basically did 20% more Um, and I will always be grateful for that because it was a period of it was an intensely difficult period and one that for all its kind of pain I feel so lucky to have had that time with her.
1: Do you think that might in some way inform your longevity at the ECB as well? I mean, Jeff rattled off the shopping list of achievements, and like they're they're massive, right? I mean, national contracts, the Super League, the World Cup win, which you've touched on before, and how you were able to absorb that a lot more in in 2017. Maybe let's just take a diversion there for a moment. The World Cup final day, you were the one that said, let's play it at Lord's. Let's try and. I remember we did a thing together, didn't we, before the World Cup when you were saying, oh, we're going to. You were being quite conservative about whether we could get <laughs> the joint filled, and I was being quite bolshy. And in the end.
2: It's not like you, Adam.
1: <laughs> in the end, it did get filled. Well, with the exception of the MCC, we'll come to that in a bit, but it did get filled, you know, in terms of public mm. seating, and it was an extraordinary day and all the rest of it. But, I mean, you as a. A teammate of a lot of the players that day or a former teammate, um, you know, kind of I guess their boss in, in broader terms, but also as a, a person that's devoted their life to, to cricket in this country in such large parts. Um, that afternoon must have been, uh, I guess, in, uh, harrowing in a way <laughs> uh, as a fan. Well, it was nearly lost, wasn't Yeah, it? yeah but then also uh, exhilarating to, to be there with, with people who, who who have been there with you. And, and I suppose, um, you know, saying before about your longevity, like how much you were given uh, from cricket and, and how much mm. you've given back in a day like that that it, it comes together beautifully.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was a it was a completely it was a fairy tale day, wasn't it? I mean, the game itself, you know, in a, it, it, we the way we came back into the game and the way we won it was just, you know, you just couldn't have written it. Um, the final being between England and India in in terms of those two teams was perfectly, you know, ended up being a perfect Combination for 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 all, for all the reasons that we know, and yeah, it's just a you know just a remarkable day. Uh, I got there very early. You know, I, I went. I know we've talked it through before, but you know, the presence of Eileen Ash ringing yeah. the bell. You know,
1: at age one hundred and five or something ridiculous, an, an age a
2: million, yeah, <laughs> um, wearing her old England women's white blazer from literally the forties.
3: That she had to pay for herself, presumably.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, so the way, the way the ground filled, the energy, the, the realisation of what was happening, watching Heather s- sing the anthem and look up. Uh, and uh, I'd taken Heather to meet Eileen um, at her little home in, in Norwich about six months before the World Cup. Um, and we shot a, a little video of the two of them doing yoga. Um, Eileen being far more flexible than Heather, and yeah, the the game itself, the energy, the day I had was you know all quite sort of, quite you know going from part of the ground you know different parts of the ground doing some stuff in the media centre, then going up to the ECB box, seeing our guests, uh, going into the pavilion briefly, and then seeing the last I don't know ten overs or so with my family, which was you know as a fan, just brilliant uh yeah lots of tears went uh, almost the first person I hugged who was down on the outfield was Lottie um so we had some we had a moment and uh and yeah just a completely remarkable day really um you know my dad was there my brother was there and you know for them to see women's cricket on that kind of stage giving so much joy to that crowd and to see the kind of the determination of that team, of our team, uh, who 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 didn't sort of roll over and die with India needing 40 to win or whatever, just wonderful, just just amazing.
3: Claire, if I can tie together a couple of your other jobs Uh, so since 2012 you've been the icc women's cricket committee chair now i haven't done the numbers for a couple of years but the last time i counted uh, there were 124 icc committee spots uh, 111 of which were occupied by men um, and about six of the others were occupied by you um, and then you know they, they weren't keen on having a lot of women involved last time I checked. Um, and then you're coming into the MCC presidency. They've been around for 234 years without a woman as president and probably some members who'd quite like to go another 234 years after you, if possible. You you, you talked earlier about being in these male spaces as, as a teenager and and that and being accepted there. You, you probably meet a lot more resistance in, in spaces like these. Um, we had a conversation a few years ago where you said that when you were initially asked if you were a feminist, you Rushed it off. You said, "Oh no, no, I'm not like that. I'm not one of them." And then later, you came to realise that, no, of course I am. Um, You know, by by the very nature of what I do, I am. And you know, your actions mean that it's impossible to see you any other way. How does that all tie together, I suppose? What, what's your thinking on that and, and how it's evolved, and the fact that you are you keep being this person who keeps pushing into these spaces and, and making sure that they have to accept that, all right, we're going to at least have one woman in the room, and then maybe there'll be another one after that and maybe another one after that.
2: Um, yeah, look, I'm definitely a feminist.) <laughs> That's the one. That's the one thing to say, Jeff. Since my kind of slightly sitting on the fence reaction a few years ago, which is funny, and I, I, I you know, that's 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 got to be linked to kind of just again childhood and just sort of for many years just thinking I was basically a boy, and you know, I'll probably go and play for the England men's cricket team, and so I didn't engage with uh, the sort of the intellectual. Situation, I, I suppose I was in, and I think the last few years I've done that more and more. Um, I don't know if it would have happened without the pandemic, but I think one of the one of my sort of one of the things I think is that I've become far more aware of that agenda um, in the last probably just couple of years, uh, which sounds maybe a bit naive or or maybe just I don't know unencumbered. Uh, before then i feel the weight of that um the challenges around women in sport women in cricket women in lots of situations i feel the the kind of the injustices of of those challenges more acutely than than i ever have the icc one is interesting i was um i was reflecting uh on that in preparation for talking to you and uh my first if i could just give you one quick anecdote which i think is important because it's it's what i go back to when i feel diminished or if i feel a bit low on uh resilience and it's it's it took place in the in the pavilion at Lords, and it was my first before I was chair of the ICC Women's Committee. I became the ICC Cricket Committee's first female member in two thousand and nine. So I'd only been involved in cricket administration a little a little while, as we've as we've gone through. And there I am sitting in a room. There were probably I don't know sixteen men and me, and in the room were the likes of Ian Bishop, Mark Hughes, Mickey Arthur, Kumar Sangakkara. Um, some absolute Clive Lloyd chairing chairing the ICC cricket committee and me in that environment for the first first time they'd they'd had a woman in the room first time therefore that no i suppose not necessarily therefore but but it, but it was the first time that there was a prominent agenda item around the women's game and i was sitting next to somebody who i won't name but who is well known in the cricket world and um We got to, I don't know, whatever part of the agenda where the women's game section was we were about to go into. And I was super nervous. I was going to be presenting to this group of really esteemed men in the game. And my eye caught the folder. We all had our ICC papers in very kind of neatly bound folders that they produced to us, provided to us. And I caught out of the corner of my eye, the papers of the man sitting next to me and he had written across completely across the A4 women's cricket report or agenda item, couldn't give a shit. And I was a I was about to speak and it was I I, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I I wanted to just run out of the room. And I think about that a lot because that was a real kind of sink or swim moment, um, in that environment. And somehow I kind of got myself together and, and did what I needed to do. But, uh, yeah, that, that, that was an awful moment. And, and actually that same person who I then spent more time with, um, I wouldn't say he's necessarily an advocate of the women's game now, but uh, I, I know he's got a different view from that view in the summer of 2009. So my ICC experiences have been really fulfilling, taught me a lot, no more so than that moment. They've taught me a lot about operating in, in, in those circles, um, about around be- you know, having to travel all around the world, Papua New Guinea, uh, India. Um, God, where else have we been? south africa um we flew for t- three days i don't think this is going to be happening now post post pandemic but we th- we flew to, to to new zealand for a three-day meeting so i've i've traveled the world with this these with these icc experiences and see you know been involved in some amazing discussions learned a lot built some really good friendships as well along the way and, uh, and, and I suppose actually Kumar probably linking into the MCC um, opportunity, probably Kumar being one of those uh, people who I did, you know, get to know a little bit through ICC Cricket Committee and who then, you know, who I've met a few times since and who has uh, amazingly asked me to follow in his footsteps as president of the MCC.
1: Yeah, he's picked up the phone and said you can join him and a number of prime ministers and members of the royal family and the aristocracy who've done this role. And and I suppose it'll be a a different role when you're in the chair, given uh, the increased focus of Black Lives Matter um, in the last 12 to 18 months, especially. Um, The fact that you come from the women's game initially, it'll be a different kind of job. And I'm looking forward to sort of having further conversations with you about that when the time comes. Um, Likewise, um, I suppose, uh, going into greater depth about what might be possible with the ICC, To me, it seems logical now that we have to find ways for windows to exist for these domestic competitions and um, to elaborate on that, but that's, I guess, more in the weeds. I suppose with so much going on for you now... There's going to be this struggle again, isn't there? There's a quote from Charlotte where with, 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 with Claire, it says with Claret, it's the next thing, it's the next thing, it's the next thing, and that, and that's you now, isn't it? It is the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. I mean, it's not as though you're going down the gears; it's the other way. You're you're about to go through perhaps what might be uh, the busiest part of your professional career.
2: Yes, I think so. I think I think that's probably spot on, and I think it's um, really incumbent on me for my own kind of well-being, but also in terms of how well I do I do my job, whatever my job happens to be on that particular day and how I show up and how I continue to, to try to make a difference. It's really incumbent on me to plan this next 18 months well. Uh, I was chatting with Matthew Fleming recently, who has been an MCC president, and I think he said that there have only been a couple of us who have had full-time jobs whilst also being in the MCC president role. And so you know, I need to really, I've started to work out how that might look and when the really busy times of the MCC calendar are, winter and summer, um, because there are, you know, there's lots of kind of mandatory things to do with the MCC president role, but lots of optional things as well. So I want to, and, and I've started as a trustee of the MCC foundation, which I'm passionate about under the, the brilliant Dr. Sarah Fain, um who used to run Afghan Connection. And so I think working out of those kind of optional things that I could get involved in. Where do I really want to hang my hat and where do I really want to try and support and make a difference um, in those activities for the MCC? Um, and then combining that with my day job, which is undoubtedly, as, as you know, my role has changed from being head of women's cricket, you know, now it's an MD role. It's, you know, one of Tom's Tom's nine, you know, nine members of his, of his executive management team. And, you know, how do I... How do I map out how those two roles dovetail, and to make sure that I give of you know give of my best to both, whilst also getting down to see the sea once in a while?
3: I find that part really interesting. The um, the, the moment of seeing the sea, of sort of being yourself. So we, we've talked a lot about the rush, about you having these various whirlwinds, um, these these rushes of experiences, and there are these couple of periods you've identified where you took time out to to be Claire instead of being the cricket person that year and a half when you were teaching after finishing playing and and the year or so you spent with your mum and dad leading up to 2014. And then it's pretty much been all back on the treadmill since. I kind of have this feeling for myself that the way we work like the rush of one thing to the next to the next to the next is like it's exhilarating and it's kind of addictive um in in a lot of ways and I I look around at times and think where have my last five years gone where have my last 10 years gone and in some ways these this last year or so has been really hard because I've had to stand still more I've had to be in one place more and and not be able to rush off to the next thing but I don't know Do you, do you have that sense do you look around sometimes and kind of think well there's all of the work stuff but but who who am I like as a person I suppose this is quite a big question but it I guess it's something that's been on my mind and I'm wondering if it's something that's on your ever on your mind as well
2: mm. I think it's a really poignant question jeff and i i I imagine the answer I'll give my answer in a minute but I think if you asked the majority of people after the last eighteen months about kind of taking stock and who you are, um, with kind of the world turning on its axis, and, and, you know, there being so much kind of devastation and fear and worry and conversations that you thought only existed in films. I think it's, uh, I think lots of people would, would say that they, uh, they, they have kind of been introspective and, and had time to be. Um, because we have all stopped commuting and we have all stopped jumping on planes um, and burning the candle both ends just been burning the work candle I suppose on the on the screen um, rather than the fun stuff so so yeah I think it's a really good question and and I I definitely um, have been quite introspective during this period um, it's a you know it's a kind of interesting time of my life you know I'm I'm you know 44. Uh, And haven't got children and you know I'm not married Um, and so that and that I've thought quite a bit about recently you know it's uh, it it makes you it makes you different um, as a as a you know makes you different in lots of conversations and in lots of you know the for example, the you know kind of the conversations on the on the screen during the pandemic. You know, I'm I'm generally you know I've seen like loads of my colleagues' children running around during you know Zoom calls and Teams calls and and their wives or partners or husbands or kind of significant others, um, you know, and 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 for you know kind of I I haven't had that. So it's been a, a strange time. It's been it's been quite lonely at times, uh, but it, it's. You know, it, it it's it it's real, and it's you know, I I it, yeah. I mean, look, I have I have thought a lot about kind of Claire the person, you know, without sounding self indulgent, and kind of career and um, and what matters, and you know what what might be missing, and what I can do about that to make sure that it isn't the kind of just the treadmill of of, of work. And it's, you know, I, in the main, I just feel I, I, you know, sitting here chatting away as we have done, you know, I've had some, some just phenomenal experiences and, and, and cricket and work, you know, has, has, has just given me so much. Um, But yeah, there are things it can't give you um and you you kind of have to sort of reconcile that and think about the choices you've made um don't you we all have to do that and i think we have had more time to 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 do that we've probably read some different material you know those of us that enjoy reading we've listened to different podcasts we've been slightly curious about we've had our eyes opened and a bit of enlightenment about different issues and we've probably lots of us um changed quite a bit over this period um so, yeah, it's a really good question, Jeff, and I think the one amazing addition to the to, to Claire's life the, the non the, that is completely unrelated to cricket is my nephew. Um so my little brother um who's not so little anymore, but he's obviously I still refer to him as that. He had a, a I've, I've I've shown Adam photos. Uh yeah, he had a baby boy. Uh Similar to Winnie, I think Adam. A couple of months board just before lockdown, and so he's now eighteen months, and he is, you know, crikey, what a bundle of joy um, and an amazing, uh, amazing diversion from all of the, the tough stuff that we've that we do.
1: Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I mean, cliched as it is, it does it does afford you that perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I, the whole thing has, just because you are. Fiercely successful, really everything you've ever done professionally doesn't preclude you from feeling how you might about other parts. I mean, you know, nobody—it's the same. Uh, you, you've got an, you've got an envious life in so many ways. People would envy what you do and what we get to do as well. I mean, we get to travel around the world talking about cricket for Christ's sake. I mean, we're we're mindful of our extraordinary privilege to do that. But it doesn't just mean you you, you, you flick the switch on everything else either. No. It, it, it is interesting that it does ask a lot of you to do this
2: yeah it does it really does and and I would say if, if it's not kind of too too dramatic a word it's, a, it's it, I have struggled with it a bit because I feel a um i think I mentioned earlier that I have become kind of more uncertain and probably more anxious as as I've got older, and there'll be probably many different reasons for that and um I do have this kind of a, a bit of a struggle about the person that people perceive me to be and which I think from what people say is someone who is kind of supremely confident and will take ev- anything on and will stand up and, and you know, put her best foot forward. And then, and I think there is a disconnect actually. And maybe lots of people feel this and I'm okay with it because I've become much more okay kind of feeling these sort of vulnerabilities than when I was younger but I, uh, you know, this sort of disconnect between, uh, if you like, cricket Claire or professional Claire, and you know, kind of my personal, my, p- my sort of personal life and personal identity, and that's sometimes a struggle because there is at times, a, a, it, it feels like there's a huge gulf, and you know, that's you know, it's kind of okay. I've, 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 you know, taken some steps on that, and we all have struggles, don't we? And that's, I think, the last eighteen months has maybe made all of us feel just a bit more open perhaps to, to talking and to to kind of acknowledging we, where we are with our, our own little lives and everything.
1: Does Claire Connor leave cricket? Do you think that if we have this conversation, and I'm sure we'll keep having different conversations, but if we're doing another episode with you in five years' time, if we're doing this, Jeff, who knows? I mean, yes, Claire Connor, CBE, all the rest, all the jobs, all the titles, all the success, but you're probably still by the sea, I'd imagine. Sounds like, whether it's in Brighton Hove or somewhere else, but... Could it be that you're doing something wildly different to what you're doing at the moment? Or do you think that the opportunities that you're afforded in this particular career you've chosen mean that it would be daft of you to, to leave when, when you've got the chance to influence so much change?
2: I think that as... I had this kind of, I think we might have discussed this. I had a, a bit of a... I had some thoughts in the build-up to the 2017 World Cup. I think we chatted about it at the time as to whether that would be a kind of moment... Where I kind of reflected whether we won it or didn't, but as, we, as it turned out, we did, and therefore even maybe more uh, a pertinent time to reflect and think. Okay, that's let's let's find another um, another challenge or, or try and try and do something else. And all I can say is that that I don't feel that. I feel I feel. And it is tricky. It is tricky because of that real personal investment and, and, and tie-in of identity and, 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 and all of that. But I, I do get real, find real meaning at a different level, actually, from when I probably first started or even my first half of my career in this role. I get more meaning now because I think I have become more... I've matured, I've, I've, my, I've become more... Uh, I've become better informed about the world and about the difference sport can make to lives and particularly to girls' lives and women's lives here and around the world. And that journey is, in a way, has only just begun. Yes, we've had some big moments and we're making progress around different board tables and uh, some, some better decisions are being made more often. But there is more to do. And as I'm kind of, you know, I, I do feel that fire still. Um, And whether it's with with ECB, with an ICC hat, with an MCC opportunity as well that's on the horizon, it's tangible. It's, you know, without kind of navel-gazing. Sport can change people's lives for the better and it can make communities better and it can bring people together in ways that very few other things can do. And I really love being part of that. And I really love seeing... The growth of the women's and girls' game and how it's thriving.
1: Absolutely, you said that people describe you as confident and super competent as well. Well, you can add kind and caring and a wonderful human being to that as well, and deeply appreciated by Jeff and me. Thanks for being on the final word.
2: Absolute pleasure. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent, and you're listening to the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon.
1: Final word, Adam Collinson, Jeff Lemon. I am back to my house. Uh, I've been on the tube. Uh, It's a lovely summer's evening in my garden, Jeff, which we've uh, recently tidied up at one that you know well. Uh, And I'm feeling thoroughly nourished after that uh, 90-odd minute chat with Claire Connor, who, yeah, as I of said at the end there, um, is a great human being, a wonderful person to be associated with in the game, and I'm glad we were able to have that kind of conversation with her, which went to all sorts of places, and I- I'm pleased that it did.
3: It's kind of nice that you're able to have a little while to think about it before <laughs> recording the bit that on the show pops up immediately afterwards. But yeah, you've, you've had time to mull it over on your train ride back, and I think that's The nicest thing about these conversations that we have when when people take us to places that we're not expecting to go and and we get to experience that you know it's it's the freshness of not knowing what's coming next
1: and the freshness of doing it face to face and i know that's not possible with uh you at the moment in lockdown Mm. jeff but just I suppose the vagaries of COVID and where places are uh, are locking down and those and those that aren't it means that I was able to spend that time um, with Claire in the same room which which also makes a a difference I think in terms of the the conversations that we're able to have so yeah hopefully that'll continue to be a feature of um, what we do here on the final word uh, through the second half of 2021 and um, yes as we put a full stop on on the episode this week our, our usual round of thank yous Jeff.
3: Yep, and also I'd say that we're open to suggestions about who we should speak to on Mm, the show. mm. If you've got a good idea of uh, someone we should interview who we haven't done, they don't have to be the obvious candidates. They could be... Uh, it's, they don't have to be the biggest names going around but we'd be interested to hear in, uh, hear about why you think that we should chat to someone um, in terms of thanks firstly to everyone on the patron page they're the people who keep the show going um, and make it all possible and also our supporters at Brick Lane and Wisdom Cricket Monthly are very grateful to everybody for backing the show
1: yeah and if uh, if you have listened to this interview and you're new to the final word my my guess is that this might Uh, be prompting people to listen to us who haven't before. Uh, We uh, have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the final word. That's the first bit you heard at the start around uh, the Nerd Pledge and the History segment that we uh, make each weekend. That's a show called Storytime that will be with you on Saturday this week if all goes to plan. So thanks to the team at Bad Producer Productions for enabling us to make two programs a week from a technical perspective. uh, To our editor Dave Collins uh, and to our um, producers Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards at BPP. You can check out their shows at badproducerproductions.com and to everybody who rates and reviews the show as well uh, that can't be underestimated Uh, those um, it may not seem like a lot but the the five-star reviews and when you drop in a couple of nice words that does uh, wonders for the algorithm so if you've not done that and if you've heard that interview and and you like what we do and and wish that we were able to do more in the future that will all play its part. Uh, Jeff, thanks to you as well for all the work you put in uh, in the build-up to that interview today Uh, and I think that's just about enough from us. This has been The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Claire Connor. Uh, We'll talk to you all again very soon.